Welcome to the Future Farm Podcast. I'm Florian Ritzman, and in this series, we speak to farmers about the big topics in agriculture. Today, we'll be talking economics with Kit Papworth, a Norfolk-based arable farmer. I'll be tapping into Kit's experience to discuss something that I still cannot understand, and it is this. According to official UK government stats, arable farmers in the UK made just 4% of their income from selling their crop in the 2021 growing season, while 66% came from subsidies. So that's about 14 times more in subsidies than from selling crop. That's odd, isn't it? So to get to the bottom of that, I'll be asking Kit how prices are formed in his space. Is he a price maker with the tools to influence what he gets for his crop? Or are arable farmers price takers who have to accept the price they are given, regardless of what it costs to grow a crop? Before I, we get into this, Kit, uh, perhaps it might be a good idea if you could introduce your farming operation to us and, and tell us what you grow. Hey, yeah, I'm Kit Papworth. I'm a contract farmer in northeast Norfolk, so just north of Norwich on the bit of England that sticks out if you're not English. So we, we contract farm for 26 different other people and we try and help them achieve what they're trying to do with their land. And we have some land uh, owned by our families too. The business that we run is predominantly growing uh, arable crops for other people. The main crops we grow are combinable crops, so wheat and barley and oilseed rape. And then we grow sugar beet, potatoes, vining peas and dwarf beans. And that's quite a consolidated list compared to a few years ago when we were growing sort of 26 crops or so. So we, we've narrowed it down to what we think we can have as a sustainable rotation. And that's constantly under review. So that's a, a bit of background about where our farming operation is. And then uh, I work with my cousin. Uh, to run this business so he specializes in potatoes and, and and I try and look after most of the other things he specializes in fertilizer I, I specialize in uh, agronomy and spraying and then we we work together to share our teams and our machinery and our resources and um, and then we both have jobs outside of our of our farming business as well where we try to help other businesses and and um, gain knowledge elsewhere as well well that certainly gives me a hell of a lot to tap into here so this might be a long call but uh, <laughs> let's get started um, so Arable, arable crops. So just try and peel the peel the, the the curtains back on this a little bit. For the layman, how are arable prices set? When you grow your wheat and your barley, how and when do you know what you're going to get paid for it? Okay, well, that, that would take up the whole podcast to explain that in full. But <laughs> just in very brief terms, almost all of our major crops have a world market, and that is set on of the major continents. So we have a, a UK a wheat market, which follows global trends and sets them. And there are various other markets around the world as well. And wheat can be traded like any other commodity, almost anything else that you can possibly want to buy and sell. And so wheat is traded over a very broad window. So I can currently sell the wheat I haven't put in the ground yet um, for a price, but I need to be very careful not to sell wheat that I don't think I have because markets can be very volatile. And generally, the markets uh, are uh, driven by factors outside of our control. Um, so as we speak, uh, the markets are on a slightly unusual high because of the unrest in the area in the, in the Ukraine and Russia. That would, on the face of it, appear to have nothing to do with wheat production in Norfolk, but it's having quite a big effect on the price of wheat uh, before harvest this year and a little bit of an effect uh, on the price of wheat after harvest. So those markets are 
quite long. We can sell we over a big period of time, but they're influenced by a lot of different things. And I can sell at any point, but lots of farmers choose not to do that. So it sounds a bit like stock trading and right? selling things you don't own. That's that's uh, short selling, isn't it? That's the irony. So very, very rarely do farmers ever sell anything they don't own. So most farmers wait until uh, they have um, they have their own grain before they sell anything at all. Some fascinating insights from Kit already. When we go back to the chat, it's still Kit. Don't worry. It's only the audio that changes. Most, most farmers will wait until after harvest before they sell what they've grown so they know what they've got rather than speculate what they might achieve because yield can be very variable as well as price. It's a bit of a stock market out there. Uh, most farmers do it the traditional way. They grow it first before they sell it. Um, so in a normal, you know, just for, for simplification's sake, in a normal situation, um, you might be right now you're saying because of the situation in the world, prices are high, but let's just assume prices were not high, prices were bad. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, if you were to sell today, do you have any levers available to, to, to influence the price? Or are you always completely at the mercy of whatever that stock market tells you your wheat is worth? So in uh, the commodity market, so wheat and barley, oilseed rape um, uh, and sugar. So they are the major markets in which we trade. I have very, very little influence. I would say almost no influence on the market itself. Farmers collectively have, um, but that is uh, across the world. And farmers are very good at responding to the market, but it takes a very long time for them to do so. So I have very little influence on my base price. So if the price of wheat was, say, £150 a tonne, I either take it or I choose to wait and see if it will go up or down. What I can do is potentially grow a premium crop so I can get a premium over the base price, but that comes with additional costs and probably additional complexity, which may not be worth it for my business. So the base price is pretty much set by the market and is determined by global markets, but I I can do other things which add on top of the global market. So you would probably then agree with me that you you don't consider yourself as having a lot of pricing power in the market that you operate? None at all. No, no. no. So I I think I have virtually no power within the market. Farmers have always been described as price takers Mm -hmm. in in a marketplace that uh, is set by others. And so just to go a little bit deeper on this sort of levers that are available, arable farmers perhaps have one lever, which is to store the grain and wait for markets to get better. Do you do that a lot? Yes. So um, in our cereals side, we store almost all of our grain with some exceptions, which we might touch on later. And our oilseed rape, we store almost all of that as well, but in a different way, uh, because storing oilseed rape is a specialist job. We would aim to store and try, and this is partly about cash flow. This is partly about management of price because we don't want to necessarily sell the day we combine it or very soon after combining, um, but also that money's been tied up for a very, very long time. So we need to be very careful that we don't just extend the amount of time that we're waiting to get the money back. You know, often the time scale of a crop can, can be sort of 30 odd months when we first start spending money on that crop right through to actually receiving money back in our bank. No real pricing power, but perhaps sort of some, some wiggle room when it comes to waiting out the market, which probably is, well, with livestock farmers, I know for a fact they don't have that. Uh, as as yeah. a tool, um, but let's uh, stick with arable for the moment. It's a very specific question coming up now, uh, which is that one thing that I find quite 
being relatively new to the farming industry, um, quite um, uh, striking is the role of uh, big distributors in this market. Um, so there's maybe three or four uh, distributors selling chemicals, fertilizer, but from what I understand, who they also they, they act as essentially grain traders as well. And I was wondering to what extent their role as grain traders um, has what does it empower you? Does it help you with cash flow if you buy your your inputs that you need to grow your crop from a distributor and then sell um, the, the that same crop back to the distributor? Is it something that you do? Is it something that is good? Or is there any particular comment? Because I find that rather strange. It's almost like, for me, it's like, imagine Volkswagen was uh, you know buying a lot of steel and then selling the cars back to the steel company uh, instead of selling it themselves. It's, it's just an odd thing for me to compute. So I'm waffling on. But do, what is the role of the big distributors in this whole price-taking and setting uh, market. Okay. So the reason farmers are price takers is because we are very, very small players in the marketplace. And one of the other levers we could potentially pull is to work together uh, in, the, in a cooperative sector or, or, or in, uh, in some sort of pooling system. The pooling systems and uh, a lot of the purchases uh, tend to occur through, as you say, uh, smaller and smaller numbers of merchants. And then we purchase our seeds, fertilizer and agrochemicals through most of those same companies. There are models by which you um, buy those inputs and don't pay for them. And then you sell your grain to that company and you get paid out for what's left at the end. But that'd be quite an unusual model um, for most farmers in the UK. Most farmers prefer to pay as they go along, either through a cooperative purchasing group or just direct through that supply company. And then they would sell their grain to whoever they feel has given them the best price. But you're quite right in saying that in the wider world, that's quite an unusual model because you are effectively running with the hare and hunting with the hounds. But farmers are so weak in this marketplace, unless they actually collaborate in both purchasing and sales, that uh, you know e even a very big farm has very little power in the market. So that's, I guess, that particular model would be quite um, uh, attractive, at least from the first from first looks for a, a smaller farmer, right, who with perhaps bigger cash flow issues say mm, i'll take my seed from you and then i'll sell my output to you and you know i'll take the cut in margins um is is, it, is this more of a problem for smaller farmers or do you generally see it's not as big issue the reason the model hasn't really developed is because fundamentally uh, up until the last couple of years producing food unless you are very much on top of your costs and are making an exceptional job of sales has not been that profitable and so it's very transparent in that type of model how little money you're actually making. Whereas most farmers tend to try and purchase through their purchasing group or through their supplier. And because the timescale is so long, it doesn't really compute how little is left at the end of it when you've added all of the costs in of your own work and the cost of fuel, etc. So, you know, there is very low margins on these, particularly if you're renting land to grow the crops. And we perhaps might come on to the economics of renting land, etc. But, you know, there is very little margin left at the end of this for the guy who's actually paying for the seed at the start, who receives the income at the end. So scale seems to be the way out. Um, 
for farmers, <laughs> but we know, I know from experience that organizing farmers as a group is not the easiest thing. But you you touched on so the, the low profit margins, and I was listening to a, a James Dyson and one of his interviews, and, and one of the comments he made is that British farming is underinvested. But listening to all of this and listening to the dynamic of high input costs and no and being a price taker and not being able to to charge a a, a fair price for your product obviously is that the reason why James Dyson might be thinking that British farming is underinvested in because the money is simply not there for the for the arable farmers oh, absolutely in very rough terms as you highlighted in your very first question UK farming PLC in other words all of the farming all added together doesn't make as much money in a normal average year as is paid to us in subsidies plus um, the costs of effectively clean up after agriculture. British farming PLC doesn't make any money and therefore very few people are investing in it. Some people are trying to grow quickly and sometimes with money from outside of the industry and trying to consolidate their land base into a you know a very profitable area and others are working together with each other and sometimes when that happens together you can see very large farms can you know coming together and, and James Dyson would be a good example of that he's one of the largest farmers in in this country he's investing very heavily in very good technology and the industry will be the net net beneficiary of that as I hope Mr Dyson will be too because uh, you know he, he is really pushing the boundary and and the people who work for him are but Consolidation is very expensive and uh, very difficult to do. And investment is, you know, very, very poor. Um, you know, I, I know plenty of large businesses that won't invest in their business without significant return on capital. And you're very unlikely to see a return on capital, you know, in, in infrastructural uh, spend in agriculture, you know, anything above sort of two or three uh, percent, if that, whereas most people would be looking sort of 10 or 20 percent return on capital. So it's quite difficult to get outside investors to invest in our industry which i presume will have a lack of investment will feed a vicious circle or might be feeding a vicious circle of if a farmer can't innovate uh, because they don't have the money to invest in their own business their yields might drop the quality of their food will have to suffer uh, and you get into a spiral really where um well uh, it certainly can't get any better and the, and the subsidies might not be helping. Is that a fair statement? That, that would be fair in what we would call our traditional um, food production. But uh, over the last few years, there's been a sudden interest in agriculture and particularly in owning land. There are multiple reasons for that. Um, but the, the current in vogue one is the thought of biodiversity net gain and carbon trading um, because farming is one of the only industries that could actually be uh, part of the answer to our climate change problems. And because we're in control of so much land collectively, there are people prepared to invest because they think that actually, whilst food production is important, reversing climate change or at least stabilising climate change by the use of land might be equally important and might be equally profitable or more so. So that is driving land and land sales and land consolidation as much as food production is right now despite the fact that actually there are parts of the world that are short of food and you know, our, our, our global population is still rising. So that's interesting because on our last podcast, we had Chris Hollingsworth, who's a regenerative farmer, and he's um, signed up to, um, with Agrina to, to earn carbon credits. Mm -hmm. And what came out of that conversation was that f farmers um, will, you know, by adopting regenerative practices, which essentially sequester carbon, which can then be turned into certificates that can be sold on the market, 
Well, you know, you initially in the first two, three years, you will take a dip in yield, which means that you almost have to have deep pockets in order to get to the benefit at the other end of the two, three years. So we, we were almost left at the, at the outset here with if, if you're not making any money to begin with from your crop or you depend on, to some extent, your distributor, perhaps, and you certainly depend on subsidies, how much leeway does the average farmer really have to make those changes to go into carbon, into a regenerative farming or whatever it takes to, to, to earn these carbon credits? Bit of an open question, but perhaps you have a comment? Yeah, absolutely. So um, farmers have been extremely adept over the last few years at, um, you know, cutting costs and, and you know reducing working together etc and the consolidation has happened gradually over many many years of the number of active farmers the number of people who own the land is relatively stable but more and more people are are coming to people like ourselves and saying would you help us to farm our farm or part of it um, and so so that consolidation is occurring but not as fast as it occurs in the merchanting sector whereas you rightly said at the start we've got four or five people um, who sell the majority of the inputs and purchase the majority of the grains. However, we have been propped up over the last few years by subsidy, and that's um, virtually held the industry together. Now, in the UK, that subsidy system is about to change very, very significantly, and we're not going to receive an, an area-based payment. So we were being paid per hectare. So the people who owned the land got paid an area-based uh, payment by the government uh, formerly by the EU, uh, via the government. And now we're going to receive what's called public money for public good. In other words, for um, improving the environment, improving our soils, etc. And that will be a huge driver in the dynamic of land use, particularly in the eastern counties, uh, where people will look at regenerative agriculture. And one of the benefits of that could be more carbon being sequestered. And we might then think about it. But this won't be a choice um, or between doing a bit or not. You'll either farm uh, and for improvement in soil and carbon or you will farm for the marketplace uh, and personally i don't see a lot of crossover in there yeah it's encouraging and it's interesting that even on this call we are in this conversation we came back to regenerative farming it seems to be something to it well there's something to it because because the government are fully on board with this yeah. uh, this started with michael gove after we left the eu when he was agriculture minister you know has continued on uh, and we're now start to know some of the details we're a long way from knowing all the details but we start to know some of the details of what our future uh, support systems look like most agriculture can't manage without a support system so it is left with very little choice unless you happen to be growing very high value crops um, but to follow that that money and that money is directing us towards uh, you know regenerative farming type systems albeit probably not a you know a full embracing of uh, of no-till agriculture across the piece but yeah definitely down that road Great. Um, so I think to, to round off this, this conversation, which I think has been extremely insightful so far, we, we touched on this at the beginning. We're talking about the distributors, the, the merchants, the, and the high, the very high cost of input prices right now. And I'd just like to, to ask you, I mean, we put fertilizer on the shelves yesterday at 732 pounds a ton, which is like a year ago, it would have seemed like outlandish, right? And it still feels weird today to be touting that as a, a good deal, which <laughs> clearly it isn't. Um, but um, well, it, Joking apart, it probably is a good deal today. But, but a year ago, those prices would have been unheard of. And if you'd asked any farmer that I know, they would have said, I'd never pay that much. But they frankly don't have a choice. They don't we have are, a choice. And, and, you know, we, we've spoken to farmers back in November who are saying, yeah, we'll just wait and it'll come down and it hasn't. Uh, and so I guess this, I was wondering, what do you think the scenario is? Are, are we, um, 
you know, if you are that cash-strapped farmer, that um, stereotype that I'm, I'm kind of stressing here, are you going to be buying next much less or and using it smarter and growing less and going to be accepted? What does this mean for our food security uh, and for the profitability of farming in the next six months? Does anyone know? Do you have an idea? Okay, so the, the profitability is is driven by a number of factors, and nitrogen is our most efficient input. So if we if we once we've drilled the crop. Once the crop is in the ground, the seed is in the ground. Once the seed is growing, nitrogen is our, our most efficient input. And so we need to use, use that efficiently. And because we don't know what our sale price is, we are effectively taking a gamble on what we think our margin might be. But at the moment, and you know, this, this could change depending on what happens in Ukraine and, and lots of other places as well. At the moment, it looks like we will probably be reducing our nitrogen inputs by about 10%. This will reduce, probably will reduce yield. But that's hugely dependent on weather, on climatic conditions around the world, and in a geopolitical situation. So at the moment, if the wheat price goes to 250, I'm, I might not even cut back my nitrogen, uh, you know, because because this still is a very efficient input, and um, you know, all of these things are up, up for review between now and the end of April. So yeah, at the moment, uh, I think there will be less nitrogen, and therefore there will be less. Uh, there will be a slightly lower yield. Probably, but the big the, the big impact on in this area is water. Once we put the nitrogen on the crop, drought is our biggest yield yield influence. Okay, so if in, in our crystal ball we see a slight drop in yield um, and, and and a reduced uh, use of more more expensive inputs, yes. Both from a consumer point of view, we we should be expecting food prices to to rise strongly this year. Is that a fair? Sadly, that doesn't work like that. <laughs> well, because all of the things that I grow, um, with the exception of potatoes, require so much processing between leaving my farm gate and arriving with the consumer, that the raw ingredient that I'm growing is such a tiny factor in the thing that you buy as a consumer, that actually, that is the least of your worries compared to all of the other factors, including labor, including fuel, etc., that go to make up the item. So if we, for example, pick an individual loaf of bread, the actual value of the wheat might go up by five pounds, 10 pounds because of the drop of yield. But if we go to war, the price of wheat probably go up 50 quid. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the value of the wheat in the loaf might go up 3p perhaps 2p or the price of malting barley in your beer or your whiskey is such a tiny factor mm -hmm. compared to wage inflation fuel inflation etc so whilst i think yield might be lower i think it's unlikely to really hit us hard in our weekly shop compared to other factors that's I guess that's some good news that <laughs> we, we, as consumers, we, we won't complain about. That's good. Um, okay, so you're saying that on balance, uh, well, I'm trying to interpret what you said. So on balance, then rising input prices can be balanced by a rise. I mean, you said 250 pounds uh, for your wheat. If, if you achieve that, you know, you're, you're used to gambling. You're a farmer. You gamble every day. Yeah, I gamble every day. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So I think so, so. So you're not chucking it in yet. You're, you're going to keep growing and feeding Britain. <laughs> uh, I'm planning to be a farmer for a while. Yeah. Yes. Definitely. That's good. That's great. Well, that's been really, really interesting. Thank you very much. And, you know, in summary, I guess it comes through quite clearly that you you are in a way hostage to the market. Uh, mm, absolutely. 
when it comes to making a profit. And I think if I, you know, I might be overstepping my boundaries here, but subsidies in one way or another are here to stay. Is that, I mean, they might change in terms of shape and structure, but without them, there is not going to be um, UK agriculture. Is that a fair assessment? I, I, the UK government has guaranteed the same budget um, for for agriculture. And I think it's highly unlikely that we will see a change to that right now. Um, yeah, as you say, they will change and farmers are extremely good at adapting to what that new new environment looks like with their subsidies. We've gone from tonnage, ton-based ton payments to area-based payments. We're now going to environmental-based payments and farmers will respond to that, but they also respond to very high prices. As we're seeing at the moment, if prices drop away, I think you know, you'll know you see a great uptake in those schemes. But if prices continue to rise, you know, with rape at £600 a tonne or so, you know, I, I think farmers are very, very good at reacting to that market, but it's a very slow process. So here are my takeaways. The first one is that Kit Papworth's optimism is infectious. Next, we can decisively conclude that arable farmers are 100% price takers. Kit can to some extent try to wait out the world market for a better price, but cash flow considerations limit his room for maneuver. And that leaves me with a final point. Farming profits will continue to depend on subsidies, but by moving to an environmentally based scheme, we may trigger investments that otherwise might not be available. And I want to be an optimist like Kit and hope that this money, if it materializes, will contribute to making the business of farming itself more profitable. This was the Future Farm Podcast. I'll be on the lookout now for a livestock farmer to get their perspective on this whole problem of profitability. Until then, I hope that listening to this podcast was just as much fun as me recording it. Bye-bye.